Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back with another interview. We're back this week with part two of our interview with Daniel Caulfield. He is the Irish expat who is now a cross-country and track and field coach at California University of Pennsylvania. He gave us an interview uh, two weeks ago that was really interesting. I especially enjoyed his talk about how he told his high school coach when he was 13 that he'd already run and he really didn't need to run anymore. And then when he was in college, deciding not to go to a meet because he figured he could win it and didn't need to go. When we finished up, Daniel had told us about uh, his career as a professional runner, and I think he had a, a realistic expectation. I think he undersells it because, as he said, he was on a world championship team twice, or he, ra- he raced in the world championships twice. So he was a good deal better than most of us are as athletes. What I think is interesting is he's transitioned into being a college coach of men and women, and I know that's relatively unusual at some institutions, and he is the track and field and cross-country coach, and I'm interested in how he determined after he finished his master's degree that I'm going to follow the path of being a coach as opposed to dropping down the rabbit hole of being a physiological researcher since he spent time in a lab in Ireland. So Daniel, thank you for joining Moving to Live for part two of our interview. Thank you. Uh, I guess I just want to add there, as you, you pointed out, of my uh, my lack of intelligence by some of my moves in the past. I'm sure some people wonder, like, am I aware of that uh, that I am that way? And yes, I'm, I'm aware I'm not the smartest guy in the room. So uh, thanks again for having me. Well, I as far as making rash decisions, I remember I played the trumpet when I was in junior high school. And for Memorial Day, they had a call of taps with a call and recall where somebody would play taps and then there would be an echo from somebody on the far side of the graveyard and I was chosen for the echo. And I still remember my dad saying, you really need to practice this. And me thinking, it's taps, I don't need to practice it. And I choked. And expecting sympathy from my mom and dad, my dad's comment was, well, what did you expect? The, the, uh, the classic, I told you so. 
And you would have thought I would have learned, but then when I was in college in New York State, I made the decision that I was going to take a advanced placement math test because I thought it was going to help me up with college. I'm not a math student. My dad said, I probably wouldn't do that if I were you because it's not going to help you. You're not going to do any very well. He wasn't being cruel. He was being honest and he had a legitimate understanding of my math abilities. But I was 17 years old and knew better and I took the math exam and I absolutely bombed it. And it pretty much prevented me from getting into one of the institutions that I thought I wanted to get into. Fortunately, it worked out. I went to another school that worked out very well. But again, he kind of still to this day likes to joke and say, well, you know, I told you, you shouldn't have taken that test. So you're not the only one who has dropped down that rabbit hole of knowing more than you think you know, or actually knowing less than you think you know. A lot less, I should say. I'm curious, you were describing in our part one interview two weeks ago that you finished your running career or finished your professional career and went back to finish your degree after having spent time in a lab. How did the decision or how did it facilitate moving on into coaching? Again, uh, being more lucky than smart, my mentor at the time, a man called Dr. Liam Hennessy, who is uh, an exercise physiologist of note, he was moving from that particular position, and I'd been kind of his, his Igor, as he called me for a while, and he said, I really need to go back and finish my graduate degree. And at the same time, I was missing road trips across, can uh, across Kansas would be the best way to describe it. There's a, a beauty to this country that, um, I mean, there's a, Ireland's a, a beautiful place as well, but there's just in, in size and scope in this country, it's pretty phenomenal. I missed, uh, I missed the opportunities of doing that on a regular basis, which I had done in college. So I went back to Adam State and I was a graduate assistant coach and kind of took off from there. And I know this is relatively unusual because I know there are many people coaching who don't have a background in physiology. And I know you and I were talking before we started reco recording that there really is in coaching, there is the basic knowledge that you need to know about physiology, but you also have to have almost a junior psychology degree because you've got multiple different personalities and the interactions. Do you think, uh, Looking back at it now, having been in the field a while, do you think uh, getting the master's degree in, exer in exercise science was the best choice? Or if you had to go back and do it, would you have done it something more in psychology related? It's hard to say because most of my education was not necessarily in the classroom. And not to knock my alma mater, my, I'd say, hardest classes were with Coach Vigil, first of all. Um, I remember topics in work metabolism. He had two grades, pass or fail. It actually was A or fail. And he asked you one question at the end of the semester, and you better have listened all semester. <laughs> he, the textbook wasn't even a textbook. It was his notes. He, he went through all the textbooks he could find, said, I couldn't find anything good enough, so I wrote all these notes. Give me seven bucks for the photocopying of them, and that was our textbook. And so, and for people who don't know who he is, he, was, he is a internationally renowned coach with a doctorate in physiology. So he not only had the scientific background, but he had the art of coaching down also. Very much so. He had three three master's degrees on top of that. Things like botany was one of them. Like, why do you need a botany degree? You know, if you're an exercise physiologist, he he was just, he, he, he wanted to understand kind of life and growth and stuff like that. And he was also a former Marine, so he was a little on the harsh side at times. So he was well capable of keeping young men in line. He, he coached some very successful women as well, as I mentioned previously, like Dina Castor and Brenda Martinez currently. So 
he was pretty phenomenal, but he would also teach us about physiology during our team meetings every day. So without realizing you're being taught on a daily basis in regards to physiology, because I actually started as a math and computer science major. So for the first two years, I'm thinking I'm not developing my coaching skills, not that I care to. I didn't think that's the job I was going to do. I was learning physiology every day. And so by the time I was a graduate uh, assistant, I was learning the art of the art of coaching, I should say, uh, from Damon Martin, who's the current coach up there, because he's just great at dealing with people and a very optimistic individual. And you got to see how that affected kids. So I kind of checked the boxes in my academic work, you know, what most people would think. And the m major part of my learning was during practice time and after in the office where we would just discuss how to help people succeed. Was it while you were finishing up the master's as a graduate assistant coach, was the whole plan all along, I'm going to coach, or were you thinking I might want to go on and do something other than coaching after I finish this degree? Well, by the, state, by, by the time I was uh, a graduate assistant coach, I was back into running and my injuries had kind of cleared up and I got the bug to do that again. And, and that has had a, a huge impact on my life because I was a little more mature. I was a little, able, uh, a little better able to handle situations and competitions and travel and all that sort of stuff and, and learn so much in those journeys. Uh, and as I was telling you kind of off the mic, it, you started to appreciate the journey more than the destination at that point. And that all was kind of happening simultaneously. So while I was still training full-time, even after I finished my graduate assistant position, I stayed in Colorado to train and I would volunteer because I just love being a part of the team. And uh, it, it it helped me with my significance and my connection. You know, if we talk about six basic human needs, it, it was definitely keeping me in balance there. And as time went on, I, I realized I had a certain a certain ability to coach certain people well, not everyone, but I, I definitely uh, could affect certain individuals. And I thought this is kind of one of my skills. This is one of my other talents that I was unaware of early on. And again, it didn't necessarily mean like this is what I should do, but it's like, I need to give this some consideration. You mentioned that you're well-suited or you think you're well-suited to coach certain types of individuals. And you're in a situation now where you've been at CalU for a number of years do you make a conscious choice to try to recruit that sort of individual or do you try to step outside the comfort zone and say, I want a wide variety so maybe I can improve my skills? Because I know you do want to influence people, but part of being a coach is being successful and, and winning at some level. I should really consider that. That's a good point. Thank you. Um, I'm just happy to coach anyone who wants to tolerate me for four years, to be perfectly honest. The type of kid that I think have had the most success here at, from an athletic standpoint tend to be not like me. So again, I am, um, as a youth, I am definitely more compulsive, less organized, more prone to the rah-rah-rah kind of motivation. And a lot of the kids that have done well with me initially are the valedictorians, the 4.0 kids that do really well. And I'm just so impressed by them that I pretty much just tell them that every day. And I think sometimes people strive to be that good of a student, to be that good of an athlete, because of they're not really sure how good they are. And I'm kind of the guy who tells them every day, it's like, you're doing an awesome job. Don't stress so much about it. You know, like enjoy what you're doing. Be proud of what you're doing. The people who are more like me, I have to get a little harsher with. And that's almost a, a skill that I've been trying to develop as the years go by while also taking care of the, the, the other athletes, if that makes sense. So I, I feel like 
if my skill level grows and my uh, knowledge grows, I should be able to coach anyone. But at this stage, I would, I would hope I'm like a 50% coach. In, in other words, like 50% of the time I'll get it right. And 50% of the time I'll, I might maybe not within a week regret it, but maybe a few years down the road being like, uh, I could have done that better. And you had an interesting comment. You said your college coach told you at one point he was a certain percentage coach. So you say you're a 50%. You get it right 50% of the time. What yeah, was your and, and even at that, I'm being arrogant because he was retiring from collegiate coaching, saying he was a 60% coach, and he'd already been an Olympic coach. So maybe I, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm giving myself too much credit here. Maybe I'm a 30% coach. Who knows? Uh, but I'm definitely – I have a lot to learn, and uh, but I'm excited to learn it. I've had the opportunity for moving to live to interview a number of endurance coaches who work with bike racers, runners, and triathletes, but they both, they work with post-collegiate. So they're individuals who are doing it, some at a fairly high level, uh, professionally Olympic level, some of them who are just doing it for just your average age grouper who, you know, their goal is to break three and a half hours in the New York City Marathon. And what all of them have and what they talk about is how each program is somewhat individualized. So, you know, you may have just throwing it out eight athletes who are training for 10,000 meters and each one of them is going to have a different goal. Your job as a coach is different from those people who are working with, for lack of a better term, post-collegiate and recreational runners in that college uh, track and field and cross country is not only an individual sport, people run times, but it's also a team sport in the cumulative score based on the times. So we've got cross country season coming up. You just finished a cross country uh, camp for high school students. How do you individualize training for individual runners, say for the women's team for cross country, or is it individualized? Because unlike the coaches that I mentioned just previously who are working with athletes one-on-one, you have a team that you see every day or multiple times a day. Uh, yeah, no, it certainly is individualized because we are all unique, you know, uh, from, you know, even almost on a molecular level, we talk about HRV, uh, heart rate variable training and realizing like certain individuals react very differently to the same stimulus. And so you have to change that up based on, on who's presented to you, even on a specific day. So in other words, we'll have, if, if I uh, give an example of kids coming out of high school, you might have somebody who came out of high school where they had a coach who knew what they were doing and gave them X number of miles a week to run. We'll say it was 25, but in addition to that, they did, um, stability and mobility work. You know, they, they'd cross train, they did other things to augment, you know, their, their, uh, their training and performance. And then you might have somebody else who had a coach who, uh, had them doing 50, 60 miles a week. Uh, you might have had a coach who they might be doing 15 miles a week and they did it like three days of running and that's it. So you're, you're dealing with just very different individuals. So first of all, if you can imagine almost like a, a pyramid of at the top of the pyramid is the date that we know our national championships is or our, uh, the date that the regional or conference and whatever we're shooting for based on our talent level that year. So we'll say we think we can do really well at the regional meet. That day is going to come for one and all. So on that particular day, we have to be ready to do our best how I get an individual to that best and with the, with the team goal in mind is it can be very different. Uh, so sometimes depending on the year, I might be writing 
if we'll say there's 30 people, I might be writing 25 different workouts. Another year, it might be 15 of them because so many kind of fit within the same mold and, and will benefit from the exact same sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it, but it definitely has to, it has to fit who you are or else it's, you're wasting everyone's time. We all know that uh, a good relationship with a coach and an athlete is a two-way communication. And you mentioned that you could have a wide variety of athletes coming in from high school with what they did in high school. How honest are the athletes when they come in, when you say, what were you doing? Or is there the idea that I know, for example, if I talk to friends of mine who are training for bike racing and I'm training for bike racing, they're going to, for lack of a better term, lie about how much they're doing to make themselves look better. How much of that do you see with athletes coming in before they really trust you? Because maybe they're trying to impress you or get a, get at a higher level. Well, you try and ascertain as best you can, like what level on the BS scale they're on. Um, and, and this comes back to a, a different uh, uh, topic, which is vulnerability. And so we progress really quickly when people are vulnerable enough to be honest about who they are, be it in regards to distances they've run, paces they've run, times they've run, why they really do it. Once we can kind of get rid of the front, as we call it, you know, like in coming from like the Bronx, you always had a front, you know, a protective, you know, sort of a facade. Once we can get past that, the quicker we can pass that, the quicker growth we have, not only, you know, athletically, but, you know, in a case of maturity or even academically, you know, if, for instance, we'll say you're somebody who could use a little bit of help in regards to one of your classes. Well, if you're too proud to ask and you feel like this would be a bad idea, you might be missing the opportunity of going seeing a tutor who might be awesome for you. And so it's that kind of um approach we take to to everything we do so it'd be more of like how do i help you be vulnerable and be know that i'll accept you as who you are and and sort of and try and empower you you know with within the scope of your your particular world your microcosm if that makes sense and i would imagine some athletes buy into that very quickly do you ever have any athletes that you could think back of that they made it through the four years and you never really got that trust early on certainly but i wasn't good coaching them back to you know me being a 50 percent coach they would definitely be on the other side they would be somebody that i did not appreciate for who they were and this is not about being rude or anything like that it's just not quite understanding what makes them tick um what is the what is the driving force so as i said for me like being the high school dropout, there was a, a sense of desperation I had when I went to college to, I will run harder because I've got nothing else. I'm, this is, you know, making it seem very tragic. It wasn't that, but the, that's in essence what it, what it is. Well, why are they here? Why, why do they come to me? You know, why are they on this team? Do they just like somebody who talks incessantly? Is it a case of, you know, they like the, the trees in bloom here? There's a reason they're here. What is that reason? And if we can kind of get to that, uh, then we can kind of help them progress quickly. I know a lot of people hear about college athletics and they hear division two and division one and they think, oh, everybody's getting a scholarship. And it's not all like major college football and major college basketball where every player is, is getting a complete full ride. I know you mentioned that you get some money, but it's not as much as major colleges. You mentioned you're honest and blunt with the recruiting, which is difficult, what's the honest and blunt to get athletes? And you ask them when you're recruiting them, you know, why do you want to come here? 
No, we certainly do. We, we, we talk a lot about things. And I, I also should mention that I'm not a great recruiter. Uh, like the, uh, and I think sometimes it's, uh, I, I'd like to be better, but I, I have a hard time pretending to be anything other than I am and this place being anything other than it is. We always like, uh, one of the questions I ask kids are, do you feel like you're weird? And if they say yes, I was like sold. I was like, we've got a whole bunch of weird people here. It's awesome. And what I mean by that is people who are less and less concerned about how cool they appear and all that sort of stuff, which is a huge deal, you know, like when you're a teenager. But as we get older, there's a little less concern with that. So we're trying to help speed up that process of like, don't worry about how this may appear. If it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing, do it. So for instance, like sleep is a huge thing. Uh, as far as our recovery goes in college, like for some of our kids, I don't even ask them to train harder the first like six months to a year. I just ask them to sleep more. And you think about it, it's like sleep is awesome, as you now know, as you get older. But there'll be a lot, well, people are going to do this, they're going to do that. And I was like, well, then you're going to have to be a little abnormal here and say, I'm actually going to bed. I'm going to do this. And if if we can get them to see the benefit of that, uh, then we're going to do really well. But we're not going to be able to see them do that if they don't really care about being better. So it's one thing, I guess, so it's not so much the lying about how many miles they do. It's the lying about what they care about. And so if we can get them to be honest about what they care about, then they'll be successful. It sounds like, and we talked about this before we started recording, there is the science of coaching, which you kind of got with your physiology background. And you say that now I'm a 50% coach it sounds like that's getting more into the art and recognizing that a significant portion of your job, even though the goal is yes, to win races and make athletes run as fast as possible. It's a lot more than just the physiology and the running and incorporates all aspects of their life, almost like the art of coaching. Very much so. I, I look at it this way. It's what use of what use am I as a coach or, or coaching staff, if we're not helping you be better as a human being by the time you're leaving here. And I'm not talking about the sports develops character kind of nonsense. Cause that's, that is BS. I was like sports, you know, it exposes character. Like with me, I found out that I'm not a good loser sometimes. And so as a result, if I don't want to be that individual, you know, and I felt embarrassed at times I wasn't because I felt like my parents deserved to have a better kid than one who was acting that way. So I would do something about it. So in the same way, it exposes who, who people are. So in some cases, it'll expose them as being like really, really unconfident. And this might be a kid who's an A biology student, you know, and you're thinking like, you have nothing to be unconfident about. Like you should, you know, you should be proud of like the work you do. And so that's, that's in essence what, um, that's in essence what we're trying to do for them, if that makes sense. So the, the running is kind of our, it's like our medium of, of being able to help them see that. Because in the end, I always tell them, you'll get old and slow like me one of these days. So, you know, the, I do want you to run fast. I do want you to win when that opportunity presents itself. But it is very much more about the process than the outcome. And, and it took me many years to realize that. And so you, you asked before in regards to, you know, if I could have done things better, I think it would have, if there was a message I could have said to my younger self, it's like, look around and see how good you have it. You know, like sometimes I'd be on a dirt road running towards, you know, Mount Blanca in Colorado. I mean, it's so picturesque. It's phenomenal. Like the highest mountain in Ireland is like just over 3000 feet. And here I'm running towards a 14 foot, you know, 14,000 foot mountain. It's, I mean, how fortunate was I, you know, but sometimes you just be like, oh, this hurts. This is bad. And it's like, it's not that bad. You know, this is, this is, this is the fun. 
I know that uh, when you drop down the rabbit hole and start looking at things, there are a number of athletes that you have, even though people think of it as being an individual sport. As you progress as a professional, do you make conscious choices when you talk to high school athletes? I mean, you meet high school athletes, you talk to their teachers, you talk to their parents, uh, you talk to their coaches. Are there some times when you leave a recruiting trip or leave a telephone call with an athlete and you just kind of know this is not a good fit for me at Cal U, not because they're a bad person or you're a bad person, but you just know based on your experiences, this isn't going to be a good fit either for you as a coach or for the team as a whole. That's a hard question. Well, it, again, back to my my past and feeling like um, having failed so many times in the past, I was so fortunate to, to meet people who did not give up on me. You know, so I, I'm not one of those kids who can cry. I had, I had a bad family life or anything like that. I have an awesome, you know, set of parents and my brother has always been very supportive of me, but people helped me. And I feel like it would be rich for me to say they're not going to they're not going to work here. I kind of put that on. They're seventeen or eighteen. Maybe I should be the one who figures it out. Maybe I should be the one who can kind of help them. And probably the only things is if they come in here with a set of parents that I realize I'm going to be working against the parents too, and the parents are not helpful for them. You know, like so. Uh, I'll give you a bad example, but just like if they came in and their parents who are clearly care about them you see they have a great bond and that their parents are the authority figures in their life in a good way and you realize their parents are maybe racist or they're like just not that you know they haven't learned their lessons yet that's going to be hard sell to help my kid realize like you know you've got to see the beauty in people and not you know stereotype and do this sort of stuff like that that's a hard sell then and and, and those are the ones that i have found that th- they are difficult to get through to, you know? I had the good fortune of interviewing Menachem Brody for one of my podcast episodes, and he's a cycling coach who's originally from Pittsburgh who's now living in Israel. And he gave a long conversation uh, about how difficult sometimes it is to break up with an athlete in that when he realizes the coaching relationship doesn't work. I know we see this time of year and at the end of the year, not so much with cross country and track and field, but you always see basketball players and football players who want to leave a university and the coach doesn't release them. How is it at times, or maybe you've had the good fortune of not to do this when at some point during the student's college career, either they come to you and say, this isn't working or you realize it isn't working for them. How do you broach that? Because clearly from what you're saying, the goal is to make them as successful as possible. Uh, I'm thinking when I was in graduate school for my master's degree, I wasn't really happy. And I talked to the major uh, professor who was the advisor and he was very open and helped me try to transfer to another place. It didn't work out for me for transferring, but he was very open about it. And uh, I'm wondering how that works with you. So this is related to who I am as an individual. I'm passive aggressive. I'm definitely, I am aware of a lot of my insecurities. I'm terrified to find out 10 years from now, ones that I have currently that I don't even recognize spiders. Yeah. So one of the things is I'm, I don't like giving up on somebody and I don't like pushing that button to say it has, this is not working. If that makes sense, they have to really screw up badly. And Cause even at that, I'm thinking maybe I could have done something different. You know, it's again, back to f- just ridiculous arrogance on my behalf, like thinking I can solve problems of the world, but that is kind of how I operate it. It's just, I, I think, you know, 
I was helped. There were plenty of times I didn't think, I don't want to say I wasn't worthy of help, but I was always amazed when people would do so many good things for me. So for me to say like, it's not going to work here. Now, are there people that I definitely push buttons on that it seems like I've given up on them? For sure. But it, I mean, to be honest, it's a calculated move. It's kind of like, hopefully this is the the kick in the rear end that you may not like me because of this, but hopefully this is the thing that will kind of change your path a little bit for the better. Have you ever had this scenario where an athlete has come to you and say, this just isn't working out for me. Can you help me try to go someplace else? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And we, we don't, um, we don't, uh, hold anyone back in that respect because if they are, if they are kind of hell bent on leaving, I mean, to hold them here would mean that now you've got somebody who doesn't want to be here. That's going to be chaos. It's going to be a bull in the China shop, you know? You were mentioning in our first interview two years ago, or sorry, two weeks ago, I keep trying to want to spread this out over two years. I apologize for that, that you are blunt and honest. And then when we were talking uh, off microphone, you also said, you know, I'm very honest with my athletes. I tell them that I'm a manipulator. And I made the comment, I don't think that's a good term to use because I think manipulation has a negative connotation. And your response with that was, no, I, I use that purposely because I want to make it confrontational, not in a bad way, but so they think about what I'm saying. Kind of talk about that a little bit. When you say you're honest and blunt, I know working with youth athletes, for example, we've interviewed uh, a number of people for Moving to Live. And one of the things is every single parent thinks their kid is going to be the next Olympic champion or professional uh, athlete. And then maybe puberty hits and suddenly they aren't good. How do you deal with the confrontational or the manipulative? How do you explain that to your athletes? And actually before that, what do you mean when you say I'm a manipulator? Uh, because I want to make it clear when you say that, you're not saying it in a negative way. No, I, I feel, and I understand the the negative connotation to it. And and it says, yeah, I, I believe in the dictionary, it'll say it's like to, you know, to do something uh, for your own personal, own, own, own personal kind of uh, benefit. But everything I do is for my own personal benefit. And I'm not trying, I mean, it, it, you know, we talk back to ego and id and stuff like that. Even if I do something nice, if I do something nice, I feel good about doing something nice. Like I, I don't do something nice and uh, like I feel awful doing this, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. I mean, that's not to be cynical, but that's not how I operate, you know. <laughs> so for every good thing a kid does, it's like I feel good that I was either in the room with them or on the track or, you know, like there is there is a benefit to me. So I'll always say like I'm selfish and, you know, some of my kids will be like, oh, you're not. And it's like, no, I'm like I benefit out of your, you know, and it might not be a running side of things. So maybe it's something they don't run well and we don't get the athletic accolades. But maybe my relationship is stronger with them as a result of a particular move. Well, I benefited from that. And so that's what I mean that everything I do is still kind of manipulative. The responsibility on my part is to make sure that they are benefiting out of this. Like I am not the sole benefit, you know, benefactor in this particular, you know, move I made, if that makes sense. And, and, I, and I should say back to the uh, being the honest part. You can't really drop out of high school without being a liar and like keep it up for long. So I have a great penchant for telling lies and it, and over the years it would make me sick. So that was the, it. I, I, back to again, I'm lucky I'm not smart. I was lucky in the fact that because of telling lies as a kid, 
and having physical issues with it as time went on that I'm kind of forced. It's, it's like this, you know, the invention of lying. It's the opposite. Like I, I kind of have to be blunt about these things for my own well, my own physical well-being. Do you think at times that's cost you athletes in recruiting because they want to, for lack of a better term, uh, be impressed or be sold at what's going to happen even though it's not true? Sure. And, and even at that, like I, like, you know, uh, this high school camp, we have prediction tables that we show them that says, you know, you run this for a mile, this is what you're physically capable of for a 5k or 3k. And th that was, uh, again, not my, not my work. That was coach Fehill many years ago, like designing that. And so, and I would say, oh, you can do this. But I'm also science minded. You know, again, I started college doing mathematics and computer science and two plus two equals four, like, pretty much you know at all times and so i would have a hard time saying like i guarantee you will do this and anytime i would i'd almost have this kind of like yeah because i know all the reasons that it might not work out and and i still do that to a certain extent so it's not i don't believe in absolutes in regards to I, i'm not always 100 percent truthful i'm not always you know um blunt about things that far from it, but I certainly, that's what I aspire to, you know, the whole time. And so if we're talking about a recruit coming in here and they're asking about the town, I will tell them like, what's good about California. I live here. I will tell you what's bad about it also. You know, I don't have a sidewalk in front of my house. I'm not too happy about that. You know, at the same time, you won't see me out there putting in a sidewalk either. So it's kind of like, I'm not going to do anything about it either. So I can't exactly complain too much. So it, it's more of that. Like if, I don't want you to walk away from here and being sold on like, this is phenomenal when it's like, okay, this other aspect of the campus or your classes might be important to you. And I'm deliberately avoiding that topic, but I kind of know you need to know this. So like that. So in other words, somebody comes here and they want to be a PE teacher. We have education and they'll be told it's an awesome education place, but we don't have PE. So not to tell them that we don't have PE, that's pretty much lying. Admitting it is still lying. You know, so that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a lie of omission. It's a lie of omission. And that's what I don't want to, you know, like we'll say we're family and, and uh, you know, parents might be like, that's exactly what we're looking for for family. And they'll say it with a smile on their face, like everything's rosy. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we're family and not like, there'll be arguments here. Like there'll be, there'll be problems I have to solve on a weekly basis because somebody's irritating somebody else. That's a family, you know, that's. You know, but we will come together when it's important to, you know, and if you're not willing to come together, you know, and be respectful throughout, you know, the disagreements and all the rest, well, then maybe this isn't for you. So it might be correct to say that you're recruiting athletes who are willing to give part of themselves to get become part of a team. If somebody's a me, 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 I, 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 they're probably going to struggle unless they change. Correct. Correct. And we, we definitely talk about synergy a lot and the, I, I would even argue that there is a high level of, uh, or a, a huge number of Olympic champions who part of their motivation is doing it for something bigger than themselves, like their country, like their family, like their, the town they're from, because as they've had success, you know, like, cause if you're Olympic champion, you probably had success from a, a young age as it went, you know, further and further, they would be touched or influenced or, or affected positively by people coming up saying like, you know, I saw you do this. I saw you do that. And what a great feeling, you know, that is, I would feel they, they would feel a certain amount of responsibility to that. I'm not saying again, that there's not selfishness involved as we talked about privately in regards to being an elite athlete, 
but I believe that there, that would be a driving force for a lot of people out there as well. And so the same thing here, some of our distance runners will great, will, will gain greatly from the throwers on the team cheering for them. You know, at that point where they're hurting, it's like, I can't let those guys down. They're not doing the same event. They're not even, you know, might not even be able to see each other all the time, but there'll be those moments where it's like, they depend on me. And it's, and it's not even for a team title. It's just for the sake of, you know, we're in here together. It might be just like, we have to put up with Coach Caulfield the same amount. So we're bonded through this this misery of listening to him all the time. You know, whatever it is, but they have that sort of, that synergy is resulting from that bond. We've been fortunate enough to talk to Coach Daniel Caulfield. He is the track and field and cross-country coach for both men and women at California University of Pennsylvania. I think the most interesting part of this part of his the interview, the professional part, is the fact that not so much the talk about physiology, but more along the art and the psychological aspect of coaching. I think uh, that crosses borders and crosses knowledge silos no matter what you're doing in wellness. There is the physiological aspect but also with movement, there's the psychological and figuring out why each person is doing something. And that's one of the reasons I wanted Coach Caulfield to be on the interview because he is our first college coach. And in a good way, I think he looks at life and athletics atypically from most college coaches. So, Daniel, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live, and I really appreciate you spending some time with us. I appreciate you uh, taking the effort to have me on here. appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.